Hey everybody, it is the 13th day of July. Let's talk a little bit right now about global warming for a couple seconds. Um, The hottest days on record for Michigan and Wisconsin was recorded on July 13th, 1936. Now, some of you young whippersnappers aren't old enough to know people that were around during the Depression. Uh, seeing that my father and mother both grew up during the Depression, and there was a lot of uh, people in my neighborhood that went through it. Uh, You just cannot understand how hot it was in 1934, and especially 1936, at least in our neighborhood. Some places, 34 was hotter, uh, but 36 set so many records. If you look at the continental United States, and yes, it's, it's, it's pretty hot out in California, Oregon, Washington, but if you look at the lower 48 states and you start looking at quote-unquote high temperature records, 1936 blows every year away by just, just huge, huge, huge amounts. Tremendously, it's, it's not even close. 1936 was a very warm year. And that was before a lot of air conditioning, folks. Uh, and, and I know in 34, a couple of the old-timers, they had a pretty hot spell in 34. And there was a number of older horses that died. And you got to remember, too, there, a lot of places, uh, they were just getting electricity sent out to the farm at the time. A lot of places didn't have electricity. So you, you, could, put the, you could put the horses and the cows under a shade tree or maybe let them into the pond but, and, and I can tell you, there was a lot of ponds that did not exist because it wasn't until after the war, the war, World War II, that bulldozers became popular and start, people started damming up spots to put ponds out there. Uh, <clears throat> you know, you didn't have fans in the barn to blow air on the livestock. And you, then on top of it, when, when, those, when, those, when those big horses died, if they passed away, uh, how are you going to bury him? You don't have track hose. You're just going to have to dig the hole by hand. And it was 100 and something outside. They they drug, they drug a lot of those those off out into ravines. And they just tried to push dirt over the top of them. I mean, just, just heartbreaking talking to some of those um, older farmers. And, and those people, they, they, they loved their horses. I mean, their horses were with them every day. They provided them transportation. They provided them power on the farm. And then it got hot. And you look at how hot 1936 was and how many records were sent or how many records were set in 1936. It's just tremendous. And, and, and the 80s were hotter than it was now, at least through the Midwest here. Now, I know the Northern Plains is having uh, a lot of heat. The Canadian prairies, you know, it kind of starts in in Idaho, um, eastern Montana, on over to the Dakotas, in through the prairie provinces, extends into northern Iowa and and into Minnesota. And when it gets dry like that, you you start getting those desert-like conditions where it warms up in the daytime, and then, of course, it cools down at night. And so you start looking at, at, you know, you actually get these cooler nighttime temperatures, which is actually good because it helps cool everything out. And I've always said it's, it's toughest on livestock 
they can take the warm temperatures of the day if it gets cool at night. But where you start getting high humidity and high nighttime temperatures and they never get a rest from the heat, that's when it gets tough. But I, I had a request by a young producer to talk a little bit more about this WASD report that just came out. And he, he's pretty um, uh, upset with himself. He sold corn at 450. He sold corn at five. He sold corn at 550. He sold a little corn at six, which a good price. But he's worried now after this report and this market went up that did he sell too much corn too early? And if you could make a profit at something, you never sold too much corn too early. But I will also say in these times that we're in, that you sometimes have to hit a home run because the cost of production is going to go up so much. I mean, we're already seeing machinery prices go up tremendously. Uh, you know, every everybody from fertilizer to seed corn to repairs to whatever else, they're all going to get their chunk. They're all going to, they're all going to, well, as one producer told me, and he's a really good farmer, everybody's going to be standing there with their hand out. And everybody's going to want their cut of what we're getting. And they're all going to expect that you and I sold it at the top of the market. And, and that's pretty tough. And he, he said that he's a little disappointed because his grandpa would have told him to be more patient. Uh, and, and the young gentleman, unfortunately, his grandpa's still not around. And, you know, the, 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 and sometimes you can be too patient and wait yourself through one of these and selling it on the downside. But... Uh, just a couple takes from, well, probably three, four pages of notes I got uh, from the WASDA report that just came out. And I think this report was, quote unquote, bigger than what a lot of people think. And I, I think one reason, even though it wasn't a real bullish report, the reason the market kind of bounced up a little bit was just the fact that people like, OK, got this out of the way. Nothing out of the ordinary. Nothing that surprises. Nothing when we're not there. OK. But let's talk about what, what maybe is yet to come in these WASDE reports. The state of the Brazilian corn crop. I think that's the place that we all got to start right now. Now, this rally that's happened in the past, this rally from basically, what, August, September of 2020 uh, until, let's call it May of 2021, where, where, we, where we've made these recent highs, that was pretty much demand-led. China bought a lot of corn. Uh, probably USDA overestimated the 2019 crop. And if they didn't overestimate the crop, they didn't take into account the poor quality of the 2019 crop, just how bad the quality was. And bad quality corn just, well, I'm going to use the term, feeds up quicker than good quality corn. Every time you handle that corn, every time you lift it, Every time you drop it, you, you turn more of it into powder. And when it's really bad quality, a lot more of it goes into power, powder. And it just seems to, for lack of a better word, disappear. And on the feed side, it's just not as good. And talking to some elevator guys that I know, uh, and this is across a wide swath. And I'm also good friends with, with people that are in the elevator industry. And they talk to a lot of grain elevator folks. The 2020 crop's probably not as good a quality as what we thought either. It's better than the 19 crop, but the 2020 quality of corn's just not tremendously great either. 
And so you're sitting with a lot of corn that, that yeah, and, and I do believe there's going to be a lot of corn moved late August, early September when the combines start rolling, because I think a lot of people are going to be looking at this year's corn crop to blend off with the, the, the stuff that they got still left and get it moved out. So I think you're going to see a lot of movement of corn early in the fall, uh, e- even though, um, you're, you'd be thinking that, well, you know, they'd be short, but I think some places have held a little bit of this lower quality stuff, but they got it sold and they're going to grab this better quality new crop corn and blend with it and, like I said, ship it on down the road. But back to the Brazilians. I got sources down there, and I think it's people that know. They're talking about that they would not be surprised that Brazil doesn't have to import two to five million metric ton of Argentinian corn, basically. Uh, They're going to have to import that. And right now, Wazda is saying that Brazil is going to export 28 million metric ton. And these people down there, they say it could be as low as 18 to 19 million metric ton. That that Brazil's not going to be able to move 28 million metric ton. Now, I will say there there will be because of the high export taxes in Argentina. There will be corn that will escape across the border, and then will somehow find its way into the Brazilian corn stream, and then that may get exported, and that way you don't have to pay the Brazilian export tax, because once the corn gets across the border and gets blended in, there's no identity cards on that corn, so corn's corn. And and the you know the Brazilian or the the Brazilian government likes to export stuff. The Argentina government trying to keep food inflation down and run by the I'm not even going to call them socialists, the communists in the large cities in in Argentina. They have these huge export taxes on Argentina crops, uh, trying to to p- push the price down and get it get keep the food cheaper domestically. Well, we all know some of that corn's going to escape across the border. So Brazil still may export a lot of stuff out, but some of that may be Argentinian stuff uh, on top of the 2 to 5 million metric ton that Brazil needs to import anyway. So if, if you go with what the assumption these people are telling me down in South America is, there's a 10 to 15 million metric ton gap in global corn production that probably doesn't get solved until Brazil raises a really good second corn crop next year. And oh, by the way, if if we have another La Nina type situation that we did this last year, and, and a lot of times they come in pairs of twos, South America is probably not going to have, a, or at least Brazil is probably not going to have a, a, a good second corn crop again. Uh, just kind of interesting how that works. Um, now, if there is a 10 to 15 million metric ton gap that hasn't been totally recognized in um, the WASDA report yet, that's another 400 to 600 million bushels. Now, uh, when, when you start looking at the at, at the numbers, when when you know they you know they've released it from 98.5 million metric ton down to 93. A lot, a lot of private uh, firms out there are saying that Brazilian corn crops probably in the 85 to 88 
million metric tons. So that's another five to eight million, five to eight million metric ton yet to go down. And we all know USDA never never takes everything down all at once. They slowly walk it down. And I think too, a lot of people are saying, well, let's you know we can walk that down later if the United States raises a really good corn crop, or if the Black Sea countries, i.e. Ukraine and southern Brazil, or Ukraine and southern Russia, excuse me, not southern Brazil, southern Russia, they're on the Black Sea, raise a really good corn crop. Well, then we'll have room to slide that, that, that another 5 to 8 million metric ton out of the Brazilian crop without driving global corn prices just absolutely nuts. Now, other experts that, that are talk about this say that if there is truly a 400 to 600 million bushel um, shortage, the Black Sea region cannot make that up all by itself. Now, we're, we're feeding wheat, and, and there's a lot of wheat being fed around the world. There's a lot of feed wheat around the world. Feed wheat by itself cannot fill that 400 to 600 million bushel gap. Now, and, and we got some corn here in the United States, but we're kind of the, the last resort supplier, and our price is kind of a little bit higher than everybody else's just because it is, and the strength of the U.S. dollar. I mean, the strength of the U.S. dollar right now is, is taking a toll on the prices because if we had a cheaper dollar right now, that, that would probably be straight on the bottom line of our crop prices. But... Um, if the Black Sea region and feed wheat cover it, well, then then you start looking at wheat prices, which if you look, the big surprise in this WASDE report was the spring wheat pro, um, prediction that USDA cut the spring wheat as much as they cut it. And there's a lot of people saying, okay, if they cut it that much, that probably means the next time it out, they're going to cut some more. And if you feed up as much wheat as what the world may have to feed up, that means wheat prices in general will probably have to go up. Now, I can tell you if you get wheat prices moving too much, you get a lot of countries like Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt <clears throat> really, really concerned because they have to feed their poor population with wheat. And higher wheat prices really, really get those people worried. And when you've seen the, the protests back in like 2007, 2008, and some regime changes in North Africa, a lot of that was driven by the fact that you had higher wheat prices and people were upset. And I've always said a starving man is a very dangerous person because if you're starving to death, what, why, why are you worried about going out and protesting on the streets? You're going to starve to death anyway. So, um, you know, and it's not just the hard spring wheat. It's Durham. I mean, you, you, you know, Durham wheats, and that's, that's a specialty class of wheat, but that's still going to be there. And then barley. You know, you talk to these barley growers out in Montana and Wyoming and different places, especially dry land barley, is pretty much gone. If it's, if it's underwater, uh, they're, they're pretty good with it. But, you know, but the other thing is, too, they've had higher temperatures out there than they normally have. And even when you're irrigating it, the higher temperatures is eating the water up quicker. So, you know, I mean, you're, you're hearing about the beer guys are worried about their supply of malting barley to make beer. And we all know when there's excess malting barley produced or there's malting barley of lower quality, 
that gets fed to livestock. Well, if, and, and let's face it, the, the beer guys may have to go down the quality scale to get the barley they need to make their beer. <clears throat> they may not be able just to go with the best of the best and the top quality stuff because they may not have enough of it and they may have to go down and, and blend in some lower quality barley or get the lower quality barley and run it through grain cleaners and all that other kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, there's probably going to be less barley fed, especially out west. And then you have the, the grain sorghum thing where China likes to make alcohol out of that grain sorghum. And you got all that. Um, so, you know, the, the question is, you had that, you know, low back with the pandemic. And then you kind of rallied up into um, the the high there in May, you know, you, like I said, we started, you know, you started last fall and then it really took off after the combines were done and after we got past the fall harvest. And so is, is the grain rally over or is we just beginning the second one that now is not really dealing with, with the increased demand and possibly the effects of maybe some, wrong estimations off the 19 and 20 crops, especially the 19 crop. Um, and if that's really true, if they really missed that 19 crop as much as some people think they've missed it, and I'm not saying they missed it, I'm just saying some people I know have talked about that. That means we all probably sold the 19 crop 40 to 60 cents bushel too cheap. But I digress. Um, are, are we just at the beginning now? Uh, starting to see a lot of this on Twitter. A lot of farmers, uh, a really, really good farmer that I know that's also a district seed guy. Uh, he he showed some pictures of some soybean fields and the 20 plus inches of rain in the eastern corn belt um, in places talking about nitrogen dilution and then the fact that these beans are starting to drop leaves and are starting to die in some of these wet spots. Um, he, he was talking about the 11 plus inches he's had since the 24th of June and four inches in the last 72 hours and just doing some damaging to the crops. Now, we can see the soybeans because they're still short enough that you can look out there, you can see the yellow spots, you can see the standing water. You can, you can see the effects on the soybeans. My question is, what's it doing to the corn crop? And you have to remember, in the WASDE report, USDA still had 179.5 plugged in for the yield. They increased production a little bit. They increased carryover a little bit <clears throat> because we increased the corn acres a little bit, and they just kept the yield at 179.5, did the math, went on down the road. And <clears throat> I can tell you, too, my... my um, my personal opinion, <clears throat> in, the two, the, in August, <clears throat> excuse me, in August, when they do the crop report, they don't look at the year, ear size, they don't look at the number of pods, they only count plant population. Well, our plant population is pretty doggone good out there. If you look at the plant population, um, for, for whatever reason, I think it's just because the, the, the soil quality was really good. We weren't warm, but we were pretty much dry in a lot of places. 
We got great stands of corn. We got great stands of beans. They're going to count those plants, and they're going to. They're, they, they. I could see them possibly raising that national yield. Now, I, I think all the dry weather up in South Dakota, North Dakota, and everything else, they they may not do that. But you know, we're going to have great quote unquote stand counts across the Midwest. Uh, well, one one final thought on the Brazilian crop too. How much did that freeze really affect them down there, and how bad a quality is the crop? And once again, uh, when you get when you get frozen stuff like that, you end up you end up getting um, bad quality corn, and that stuff feeds up. And you know, possibly maybe the 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 best. The best comparison that you can make to what happened in southern Brazil with the freeze is 1974 in the United States, where we had that tremendously wet spring. Uh, a lot of stuff didn't get planted till late, and then we had a dry summer, and then we had that early September freeze, and that last of May, first part of June planted corn um, just was really, really bad. Um, so I think we got to. I think we got to think about in the back of our minds how much uh, is the Brazilian crop, you know, how much is it under the 93 million metric ton? Is it 93 million metric ton? Where is it at? And then the USDA yield at 179.5, the dry weather in, in quite a few areas, and I still talk to people in northeastern Iowa that are still missing out on these rains, uh, you know, can our national yield stay at 179.5? But like I said, do not be surprised when they come out with these first reports because they base it on plant population, not the actual condition of the crop, uh, that, that the yield isn't higher than what you think the yield should be. Uh, looking at the crop condition ratings, we're just kind of hanging around that 60% good to excellent. And I don't know if 60% good to excellent is good enough to give us a 179.5 yield. Now we got a long way yet to go, um, but it but it won't be until September and really October until USDA starts with the field estimates. It starts with actually combines, and let's face it, the early stuff is going to be better probably than the late stuff. Just the way this dry weather, if you were able to get it in early and get it up, it could beat the dry weather in these dry weather areas. My guess is, unless the weather changes dramatically and, and you have a really really tremendously good August and September the early stuff's going to be better than the late stuff so I'm guessing that your early yield reports are going to be huge um, ta- talking to agronomists there's a problem with uh, edible beans with a root rot just because of all the weather and then uh the several several news publications have been covering this, and, and I noticed it in my neighborhood. The pumpkins are in trouble. And, and why do you say that in my neighborhood? Well, in the county right north of me, it might as well be the pumpkin capital of the world. 80% of all the pumpkin stuff that gets canned in cans comes out of basically three, four counties here in central Illinois. And I'm right on the right on the edge of that. And we drive past a number of pumpkin fields, and the the too much water's been affecting these pumpkins too. 
and they're going to have to spray them. They're going to have to monitor them. They're going to have to keep track of them. And so I sit here and thinking, if the edible beans are in trouble, if the pumpkins are in trouble, what's it doing to the corn and soybeans? You know, 2019, 2020, the 2019 crop came in at 165 and a half. And the 2020 crop was estimated still as at 172. And if you look at the condition ratings, the condition ratings were a little bit better last year than what they are this year. So you have a 172 conditions ratings about the same, but we're keeping our yield at 179.5, which upped our ending stock 75 million bushel. Now, the, the increase was more than that, but they added to usage. And But what happens if you drop that to a 175, 176? Do the math. It, 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 it gets tighter quicker. Um, you know, and... and, and on, on prices, I'll say this, we're still not out of the woods of this thing going lower because we're, we're at the bottom end of the trading range and you bust through that bottom end of that trading range, Katie bar the door on the way down. But on the other hand, if we are at the bottom end of the trading range and we're going back up to the top of the trading range, those old highs were at $6.30. Plus a little bit. But I, I'm just, just being a rough estimate here. Um, and the, like I said, the bullish surprise was in wheat and always your, what, what I call a good solid grain rallies led by oats and wheat. And neither one of them have been leading in this thing. Now I know people are going to say, well, it's a corn soybean world now. It's not as much a wheat note world, but I can tell you that wheat's growing almost everywhere in the world. Wheat is all over the world. Countries keep strategic stockpiles of wheat. Talked about that earlier, about, you know, one of the best ways to get run out of a government in a position of power is to not have cheap wheat for your people to eat, cheap food, because if they don't have, if their food prices go up, um, that's not good. You know, there, there's two things around the world that will keep people happy. Cheap food and cheap gasoline prices. And, and, and I tell you what, whether you like them, whether you dislike them, whatever, if you look at the Iranians and their government, there's two things they try to keep cheap to their people, food and gasoline. And that's how they stay in power. They keep cheap food, they keep cheap gasoline, and people tend to be happier that way. So if, if wheat has to lead, and, and after that WASDE report, Minneapolis wheat was up 47 cents, Kansas City was up just 17 Soybeans were up 21, but that Minneapolis wheat going up 47, that hard red spring wheat, uh, keep track of that. Um, you know, they dropped it from 446 million bushels down to 334 million bushels on the spring wheat. That was a huge drop. Look at the percentage-wise drop in that. That's, a, that's like 25%. They dropped the average yield or the bushel per acre yield from 48.6 bushel to the acre last year to 30.7 bushel to the acre this year. Almost an 18 bushel to the acre drop. I mean, that that's huge. Um, you know, and, and back to the Brazilian thing, 5.5 million metric ton is about 216 million bushel. And if the U.S. has to export that, um, 
and, and they did in they did in the they did in the the Wozni report they raised the exports fifty million bushel. So they 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 did raise it, but some think that's not enough. Some think that well the the, the other problem that we have is you got to physically get all this corn and soybeans out of this country, out of the United States, and and. Okay, a lot of stuff goes to China out of the Pacific Northwest, but if they don't have the crop in North Dakota, South Dakota, and Minnesota to move to the Pacific Northwest, then you, you know, that cuts that port capacity down because you just don't have it. And I know this year they moved some grain out of, um, well, there was a port up in Canada, uh, up in um, basically um, the Hudson Bay area, clear up north that they, they got that elevator back running again and they shipped some ships out of there. But the Canadian Prairie Provinces are dry too. Now, I, I was told that there was some grain shipped out of an old elevator in Houston that hasn't shipped grain out in a long time. So if the price does get high enough, somebody will probably figure out some way to do it. But physically, when you start looking at all the soybeans and all the corn that we need to export, it becomes a math problem. Can we get that much stuff out the door? And, and knowing, too, that we really don't have a good way in this country to get grain from the Midwest to, like, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia. You know, there's, you know we, we import soybeans from Brazil into the southeastern United States because it's easier to load it on those northern ports onto a big ship on the Amazon River have it sail up the eastern seaboard and offload it there, it's cheaper to haul it by ship that way than it is to truck it from the Midwest to, to the southeast. And it has to do with, with, with harvest, you know, basis and, you know, everything else that goes on. Um, you know, they don't do that all the time. But when they're harvesting in Brazil and we're not harvesting here in the Midwest, that sometimes makes sense to do that. Well, um, you know, we talk about infrastructure. We talk about infrastructure spending. I can tell you there's a lot of stuff in that infrastructure spending that doesn't really do what we really need it to do. But once again, too, you know, do we, should, should we build something for private industry to do? But uh, I will say this. Try, try building a, a new railroad this day and age. You know, talk about people not wanting electric light poles across the end of their field or through the middle of their field or a natural gas pipeline run or an oil pipeline run through their field. How are they going to feel when you say, hey, we're going to run a new railroad right through your field? That's going to get them wound up. Uh, but we we got to physically move that if you increase those exports that much. So it, it you know, it, it starts becoming a, a math problem. Um. So, you know, to, to, to fill some of the holes in Brazil, they, they upped the, the U.S. exports 50 million bushels. We, we all know that the Black Sea region, basically Ukraine and Russia, unless they start shooting at each other again, um, are going to increase their corn and their feed, wet, feed wheat exports. That's just going to happen. And my guess is, too, China's going to figure out a way to pull grain into western China with trains out of southern Russia. I think that's coming. I mean, boats are really cheap, but, you know, you get some of that, that Russian farm ground that's, well, or in, in Kazakhstan, 
you know, that area in there. Of course, some of their problems is a, is a water problem like the Western United States. They've depleted their water resources there where they don't have the ability to irrigate like they would like to. But don't, don't get it past those Chinese to figure out an engineering marvel to get them water to do that. Now, that's lo longer term than shorter term, but yet you still could load a train in southern Russia and rail it into China. And then that, that takes pressure off ports, too. Well, we do know that the WASD tightened up the world corn and wheat balance sheets. The, the world bean thing was already tight. You know, I, I, could, I, could, I could argue with you all day long that the beans just don't really add up. But, uh, and part of it is the United States, the, the USDA is not going to lower ending stocks in soybeans, it looks like to me anyway, below 119 million bushel. They're just not going to do it. They're going to say that's the pipeline stocks that we need. That's the pipeline that's going to be there. That's how much needs to be in the system, how much needs to be rolling on wheels. And so it's, it's not going to happen. And I, I, was, I was thinking that even though there was a lot of beans planted early because of the cool weather, cold weather actually early, that maybe we weren't going to get some of these soybeans harvested early. But now I look at all these yellow bean fields and the, the bean diseases that's going to be out in there is going to be running rampant. These beans aren't going to mature up. They're going to, some of them are going to die off early, and there will be some fields harvested earlier than what I thought a couple of weeks ago. And so, you know, if you were planning on some early premiums, you need to be getting the combine ready now and be thinking what your, what your game plan is for that and you need to be talking to your grain elevators because your early harvest plans and their early harvest plans may not come together now i'm not here predicting price uh, that's not what i'm doing here i'm just going through the numbers going through some of the stuff uh, talking about you know when people say well they 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 didn't they didn't you know they need to raise those exports more than 50 million bushel i think I think at USDA, there's some really smart people, and they're looking at how much can we actually export? How many bushels can we actually get down the river? You know, going down the river, you can only lock so many barges through the locks and dams. You know, I mean, you got, you got to get the stuff to the river, and then you got to get it loaded on ships. And here's the other thing, too. You know, we, we get an active hurricane season, and we get several hurricanes flying around in that uh, New Orleans area. That's throwing monkey wrenches into getting things loaded. There, there's, there's a lot of moving parts to this. There's a lot of stuff that could go wrong. There's a lot of stuff that could go right. You know, if we get less hurricanes than what we think, and you don't have any shutdown there, and everything holds together, then, then you, could, you could get along farther and better than what, what you are. But I, I think we still need to keep track of what's going on with that Brazilian corn crop. I, I think uh, the state of the Brazilian corn crop is, a, is a, still an unanswered question. Uh, I think we have to keep track of this hard red spring wheat. I think with all this rain, too, we've got to figure out what's, what's going to happen with the winter wheat, both soft and hard winter wheat harvest what's going to happen on the end there now 
as the harvest moves north, you're going to get into drier geography, places that have been drier, that looks like to me it's going to tend to dry out. Looks like looking at the long-term weather, and we all know the weather can change in five minutes, it's still going to be the tail of two corn belts. You're going to have this eastern, southern corn belt that's going to stay wet, and you're going to have that northern, western corn belt that's going to stay dry. And, and that's a quote-unquote tough thing to do. Well, hey, a lot going on here, a lot to think about. That young farmer that, that uh, texted me and uh, wanted me to talk a little bit about this stuff, I hope this helps. I'm, I, you know, th- it's hard to predict prices when you're in the level we are because, you know, it, tomorrow us in China could be throwing missiles over Taiwan and then Katie bar the door, who knows where it goes. And tomorrow they could come out and say with all this rain, there's been some kind of new bean disease that came out and it's going to affect bean yields hugely. And uh, it could go the other way. So there's really not, not much known one way or the other as to what's going to happen, what's going to go on. Just that um, there is a lot of moving parts. We are a lot higher than we've been in the past. Uh, we are probably should be at profitable levels for most of you. And it's a situation that I would rather be in than not be in. It's a lot better situation than what we were in the middle of the pandemic when we were wondering what we were going to do with everything. Well, hey, the smartest audience in agriculture. I know there's a lot of you out there that's smarter than I am when it comes to marketing. If you if you got any if you got any uh, tips for the young man, I think he'd really appreciate it. It's uh, I think been frustrating for him to try to figure out how to. Uh, market all this and to watch this market go up and go down and go up and go down in in some huge swings huge swings you know i remember what my dad used to say that a 20 cent move in a year was a huge move boy those days are gone that that that's a that's a huge move in a minute i guess anymore well hey smartest audience in agriculture we'll talk to you tomorrow